you wouldn't know it to look at me, but I've got a problem with hunger. Um, I just happen to have genes that hide my sin. So, uh, so eating a lot is something I really resonate with, which is why this, this uh, interaction I'm going to tell you about stood out to me. There's a comedian whom I don't recommend, but who is absolutely a cultural prophet and brilliant, uh, but super crass. Um, this, this interaction is not. So this is from uh, Louis C.K. He's talking about going to the doctor. He's talking about visiting his doctor for, like, for just a regular checkup. Uh, and the doctor's talking to him about his, just the, the way he lives. You know, uh, do you get much exercise? Uh, how's your, how are you sleeping? Um, you're a little bit overweight. I'm concerned about that. And so he's asking him um, about his eating habits. And he says, uh, you know, how soon... Would you say, how soon into a meal would you say you feel full and then stop? And Luke, he thinks, says, well, it stutters. Well, I, I, don't, I don't stop when I'm full. The meal isn't over when I'm full. The meal is over when I hate myself. That's when the meal is done. Like, oh, get it. Oh, my goodness. Don't let me look at, oh, don't let me look at that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's awful. He stuffs himself, and I, uh, I, can, I can resonate with that. Just eating and eating and eating. Uh, and, oh my goodness, somebody's sitting on their keys. If your keys are in your pocket, you're sitting on them. That bump is not the seat, it's your keys. Move them. <laughs> now I'm lost. Okay, so we can look in a similar way. Uh, Louis C.K. says, I don't stop when I'm full. I stop when I hate myself, when I eat so much that I can't even take anymore, that I feel disgusting and ashamed. And we can do this. We can look at him and say, that's gross. And then we can look at this woman in this passage and say, five husbands and another man? You've burned through six men? Gross. But you and I... Uh, may feel similarly if somebody took out our credit card bill and looked at each individual purchase and said, you spent how much? You did what? Or somebody looked into our closet and said, look at all these shoes. Are you kidding me? Or somebody looked and logged your time on, online when no one else was watching. You visited that site again and again? Jesus is addressing this woman's thirst. He seeks her out, as he has you and me, to speak to her of his freely given, life-giving gift. He's addressing her thirst in those areas that we want to hide. I'm going to contend her, um, our, our directed thirst. So, so here's what's happening. We said that Jesus just met with Nicodemus. Um, he uh, had an interaction with John that we looked at last week. So if the Holy Land is like a, a, a rectangle, stood upright, then Jesus is in Judea all that time. He's, done, uh, he's performed his first signs. He's uh, done his act at the temple there that you'll remember if you've read uh, John before. Uh, he's interacted with Nicodemus. All these things happen in the southern part, in the bottom part of this, this rectangle. Uh, but now... The Pharisees start keeping track. They're making tick marks. How many did John baptize? How many did Jesus baptize? We're going to play these guys off against each other. We're going to, we're going to bring some contention, some discord here among these people who are wanting to seek 
God earnestly. And so Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. And he is going to then go to Galilee, which is in the north. Okay, so he's got to go from the south of the Holy Land down in Judea up to the north, but right smack in the middle is Samaria. Um, And he chooses, maybe contentiously, to go through Samaria. Um, A lot of good, holy, righteous Jewish people would go around Samaria. They wouldn't pass through that land. Um, Here's why. There's a little setup in this one, guys. I hope you'll forgive me that, but I think it really helps to understand what's going on. Jesus decides to go through Samaria, um, an unpopular decision probably. So Samaria, if you'll rewind with me, there used to be um, in the Old Testament a divided kingdom, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Uh, the, uh, the Assyrians, dang it, I always draw a blank when I'm on the spot. Bad guys come and take the northern kingdom. Uh, the Assyrians come and take the northern kingdom away, right? That's Samaria. The southern kingdom is still there. Later, bad guys come, the Babylonians come and take the southern kingdom, and, and their tactic is, we'll take these people out of their land, and then we'll put these other people back in there, okay? That's what's happened with Samaria. And so the people, the Jewish people who are still there, uh, who, who did not get deported by Assyria, have all these foreigners come and live in their land. So this is Samaria. They make the decision to start to intermarry and to start to mingle the religion with these people. Okay? That's what's happened. They, they have a different Old Testament canon. They have a different canon of the holy books, the Samaritans. They have a different drive, a desire for a prophet that would arise. It's not, they don't believe in all the other prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all the rest. They worship at a wholly different spot. They say, this is the holy spot where God dwells among his people. Uh, a different mountain, which Jesus was right next to in this interaction. So Jewish people said, uh, when they came back to the land, when the true Jewish people came back to the land, they said, we won't have any dealings with those people. We will not interact with you. You're traitors, and you're living out a false relationship with God, a false religion. No interaction. In fact... To even sit down at table with, with a Samaritan would make you ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to temple. You couldn't have your sins uh, relieved. You had to become clean again. You, it would contaminate you to be near them. Much more, a woman, and even more than that, to drink out of the vessel of a, of a Samaritan woman was, is supposed to make Jesus extremely unclean as, long, as, as well as being socially a really bad idea. But Jesus, the rabbi, does all, he crosses all those boundaries, comes into Samaria, and it's finite. He can't be everywhere at once. Jesus chooses to walk through Samaria to find this woman, to sit down, to talk to her, and to pursue her. He's seeking. Jesus is seeking, and he's crossing barriers to do it. So, it's at noon, last point. This happens at noon. I think a lot of you may have heard this. Uh, typically you'd go out in the morning or the evening to go get the water. So this woman, uh, because it's cooler during those times of the day, this woman walks out of the village all the way to the well to get this water, almost certainly in order to avoid talking to other people, in order to avoid talking particularly to the other women, um, which becomes clear later as Jesus asks her about her husbands. So he says to her, this is awesome, Jesus gets tired out by the sun that he created, gets really hot, and he asks for a drink. And uh, 
And then he says, if you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for living water and I'd give it to you. Water that continually flows. And then um, she, she asked Jesus, you know, he offers this mysterious thing. She asked him a question that I think all of us end up asking Jesus about our thirst. She says, Jacob gave this, uh, this well to, to, uh, to his kids and he and his family and all their livestock drank from this well is awesome. This well has been here. This well is a good, dependable well. It gives us water. Are you even better than Jacob? This is something I can see right in front of me, a tangible benefit. And you're telling me you're going to give me this other thing? Why would I want the other thing? This thing is right in front of me. It works. It's right here. Jesus says everyone who drinks this Jacob water will be thirsty again. But if you drink my water, you'll never be thirsty again. You see, I think we all ask Jesus that same thing. Are you greater than Jacob? She asked him, are you greater than Jacob? He gave me this thing that's right in front of me that I can see and that I can hold. Are you greater than that? And we asked Jesus the same stuff about when we get thirsty. Are you greater than food? Are you greater than sex? Are you greater than a well-ordered life? Are you greater than successful children? Are you greater than success at work? Are you greater than popularity? Are you greater than being respected? Are you greater than being feared? Are you greater than having power? Are you greater, Jesus? Jesus promises us, like he promises her, everyone who drinks this Jacob water, everyone who drinks the kid's success water, everyone who drinks the academic water, everyone who drinks the hard work at work water, everyone who drinks the well-ordered and safe life water is going to be thirsty again. She says, well, in that case... Give me your water so I don't have to come back here anymore. She drags it back into something that she can see, something she can hold. She doesn't want to work anymore. Maybe. Maybe that's what she's doing. This is the part that that we find out exactly what her thirst has driven her towards. This part, I'm going to confess, I'm really uncomfortable with. You know, as you prepare, as I was preparing all week, I read this passage a number of times every day, just reading it through. And I, I found as I went through the week, that I almost always skipped this little interaction. Just kind of, I know what that says. And went on to the next part. Because this is the really hard part. Jesus says, go call your husband. Mm. She says, I have no husband. You're right when you say that. You already knew Jesus. You're right when you say that. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with isn't your husband. You're quite right when you say you have no husband. That seems mean. That seems like jerk Jesus. I'm not comfortable with jerk Jesus. I like Jesus that seeks out the lowly and the, and, uh, and the afraid and the lonely and offers them living water that, that will quench the thirst. I like that Jesus. I don't like the Jesus that points out sin, that, that kind of does it in this seemingly kind of twisted, passive-aggressive way. Like, I'm not comfortable with that Jesus. But look what happens, and it's exactly what Jesus is after. She says to him, I see you're a prophet. How do I get clean? How do I get forgiven? She asked about worship. She says, where should I worship? You see, the temple was the place where God's glory dwelt, where God was among his people. The temple was the place of cleansing. The temple was the place of forgiveness. The temple was the place to be made right when you had six dudes you lived with. Jesus is being so kind to her. He's saying, don't you see? Don't you see? You didn't drink the Jacob water. You drink the husband water. It's left you dying. 
It's left you desperately thirsty. <laughs> You're still sitting on them. <laughs> it's left her thirsty, and he is so kind as to point that out. It's not working, dear woman. And she says, where do I go? Where can I go? Where can I go to get clean? Where can I go to be forgiven? Do I go to Jerusalem? I'll do it if you want me to. And Jesus says, not where. It's not where. It's how. It's how. He is driving at this. Uh, Richard Loveless says this, a conscience which is not fully enlightened somebody who doesn't understand, both the seriousness of its condition before God, how bad the thirst is, how bad it's driven her down, and a conscience was not fully enlightened to the grandeur of God's merciful provision of redemption, will inevitably fall prey to anxiety, pride, sensuality, and all the other expressions of that unconscious despair which Kierkegaard calls the sickness. He is showing her at the same time he said, I'm the gift. I'm a free gift. The beautiful redemption. He's also saying, go call your husband. He's showing her her desperate situation. And if you can have both of those, that's when deliverance starts. That's when you get delivered out of this despair that Kierkegaard calls the sickness. The sickness. So she says, I see the sickness. Where do I worship? Where do I go to get clean? And Jesus says, um, not where, but how. The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. I like um, the way that Nathan read this passage because it's the way that he learned it. And the NIV uh, must have been their most recent change. They've called it, uh, who worship in the spirit and truth. I don't think that's the best translation. It's an okay one. Uh, But they capitalize the S and but I think what, uh, there's no definite article in the Greek here, um, which doesn't always mean anything. But in this case, I think a better translation is, like Nathan read it, worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, lowercase s. That's a hard one to understand. Here's, what I, um, here's where I'm going to go with that. Uh, 1990, forgive me a sports analogy. I do like art. Or, or music, but I'm not cultured enough, so sports it is. 1990, NBA championships, game one, Bulls versus the Trailblazers. If you were around this time, you remember this phrase from that game, the zone. Michael Jordan went off, went off like crazy. He hit six threes in the first half. He was nuts. People, they couldn't stop him. He was absolutely out of his mind, hit almost every shot he took, just crazy, went off. And there's this famous clip from that where he hits one of his later threes in the half, and he's kind of running back down the court, and people are just shaking their heads, and nobody knows what to do with it, nobody can stop him. And he looks over at his bench, and he does this. Y'all remember that? And it's kind of a classic thing for an athlete to do now. You'll see it when they do something just crazy good. A lot of times, a lot of these athletes are kind of like this. He was in the zone. He was playing at the absolute 
pinnacle of his abilities. Nothing was getting in his way. Nothing was hindering his performance. He was playing as he ought to be able to play. He was playing in, him, in his full self. His full abilities were completely focused and unhindered from expression. The zone. That's what people call it now when an athlete does that. That's worship in the spirit. Worship in the zone. Being so wholeheartedly um, unhindered and full self-giving to our God. Worship in the zone. Worship in the zone. He says, uh, his, his followers, the, Lord, uh, the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit, who will worship in the zone, and who will worship in truth. And that's why we read the Judges passage. This is a story about a man who made up his own religion, <clears throat> who built uh, an idol God said never to do. He created priestly garments that God said there's only one set of those. And he himself ordained a priest. Uh, which God said only comes from the line of Levite, and you don't ordain them privately. Uh, he, he created his own religion. It wasn't, a, it wasn't worship and truth. It was far from it. This is the other part that is really uncomfortable about this passage, that Jesus is reaching across barriers to include somebody, but he's saying, I can't take you as you are. That's really uncomfortable for us. We want to believe in God's Um, unconditional love. I don't think that's a very good phrase. Limitless love is probably way better because his love is not unconditional. He doesn't leave us in our current condition. So he says to this woman, there's, there is, you know, it's not Jerusalem. It's not, it's not uh, Mount Ebal. It is, uh, it's me. I'm the temple replacement. I'm the place you come to get clean. I'm the gift of God. Two chapters before this, he just did his act in the temple where he stopped all worship, all activity in the temple of God in Jerusalem. He's not cleansing the temple. He's not setting it straight. He's stopping the temple. He's judging the temple. He's saying, this is not it anymore. I'm the temple replacement. I'm the place of cleanness. I'm the place of living water. I'm the gift of God. I'm the one who brings truth, like he says at the end. It has to focus on me. In, uh, in the movie The Greatest Showman, there's a, uh, a song that I love. Uh, that I've been playing. I'm one of those dorks that gets into one thing, and that's all I get into. So I guarantee it's played, I mean, well over 14 dozen times this week. Like a lot of times I've played this song. It's, uh, it's the opera singer, that Jenny lady, and she sings this song that at first I thought, Oh, this is a song about big ambition and wanting to own the world and be famous because it says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. And I thought, oh, that's good. She's acknowledging that like, you can't satiate your thirst on anything the world offers. It's not actually what the song is about because the line right before it that I didn't hear is because darling without you. It's a love song. She says I can have everything, but if I don't have you, it's not enough. It's not right. I'm going to still be thirsty. That is worship and truth. It's worship that's directed at Jesus Christ. The anointed one, as she says in this passage, the Messiah. 
the one who will bring truth. You see, we love inclusion, and that's a good thing. We love reaching across boundaries, but we don't love to say to somebody, there is one way, there is truth. There is truth, and you must get in line with it. You must be brought into line. You must, you must receive. Jesus says, not where, but how. Worship in spirit and truth. Now, you and I are never going to be able to worship with our whole selves. We're never going to be able to give ourselves in the way that Michael Jordan played that game. Just unhindered full expression of our truest self before the God of the universe. We're never going to be able to go to him, the only place, the only one who can satiate our thirst in truth. We're never going to be able to take our thirst to him unless we know that he was the one who thirsted first. You see, in John's gospel, there are two places where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. There's this one, where he's sitting by the woman at the well, And then the other one is on the cross. In chapter 19, John reports this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished as he was on the cross, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. You see, on the cross, Jesus thirsted. On the cross, Jesus thirsted, and he did not get springs of living water. He got the cup of judgment. This is a very common, uh, very common theme all through the Old Testament, especially stretching into the New Testament. Jeremiah twenty-five says. Uh, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. It's the cup of wrath. It's the cup of God's judgment against thirsty people who go the opposite way of him, against thirsty people who don't worship in truth, but who look to the water of Jacob, who look to the water of all the other things we think are going to fill us. And Jesus drank the cup that you and I deserve so that we could have the springs of eternal water, living water and eternal life that he deserved. Now, to whom did he give this gift? We've been hinting at this, but I want to close with this. Uh, Jesus offered this gift. He said it's a gift. He said, um, he said to this woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will then become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How many action words did that woman, were required of the woman sitting there? This is an easy one. Drink. All she had to do was Receive. He gives a gift, this is what is beautiful about Christianity, and this is one of the tests, one of the major tests, if you're ever hearing anyone talk about good news of any sort, you can ask, who's it for? 
Because if it requires you to walk on your knees on pilgrimage to the holy site, that's not for everybody. If it requires you to sacrifice everything, everything, absolutely everything to gain success, then it's not good news for everybody. But Christianity, what God offers through Jesus Christ, is for absolutely everyone. It's, as we say about the supper, it's a meal for the weak. It's, it's a relationship, it's an offer for the weakest. For the woman who is cast out and doesn't belong anywhere. Not even among her cast out clan. But it's also for Nicodemus, who is the highest of the high in political power, the most moral, the most religious, born into the right families, plenty of money. He's not too high for this offering, nor is she too low. This is a free gift. And all we need to do is receive it. Just receive it. So, as we said, Jesus crossed boundaries. To give to this woman. What happens to her? She goes and crosses boundaries to go share it. Right? This is the woman who tried to avoid interaction with anybody else in the village. And she runs back. And and tells all these women who despise her. Who judge her. She crosses those boundaries to go tell them. Come here from the man who knew everything about my life. When we receive, when we drink this living water, when we receive what Jesus offers us here, we're kind of like a rabbit. I got these really big, strong legs. Now, what do I do with them? Well, you run. You run. That's your job. If you're a rabbit and you've been given strong legs, you run. If you're a Christian and you've been given free living water, free acceptance of Jesus' crossed boundary after boundary to come to you, then you go give it. You go give refreshing. You go give, offer forgiveness. You go tell like the woman, I'm going to cross boundaries. I'm going to go to people who hate me. I'm going to go to people who don't care anything about me and tell them, come talk to the man who who knows everything. Come see the Messiah who leads us into all truth. Okay, how does that happen actually in our lives? How does that happen? Because if you stop and look at your week, Have you like color-coded your week, right? So yellow is family time, blue is work time, green is sleep. uh, And then, you know, let's say red is optional time. How much red would there be in your week for most of us? Very little. So we're not going to be able to say, okay, with that little sliver of red, go to people like the Samaritan woman. Like try and work that in because you're running five minutes ahead of schedule on your way from this meeting to that, and now stop in and try and love somebody real quick and offer them living water. It's not going to work, right? That doesn't work at all. We have to put ourselves in the way of outsiders. First thing we have to do, as Eric often reminds us, is, is this. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people don't have. Look, this isn't a command to get living water. It's, a, it's an idea about how to give it away. You've got to have time. Hurried people can't give it away. So secondly, put, your way, put yourself in the way of outsiders in conclusion. Um, here's a good idea. How about get a dog? And then you got to take the dog for a walk all the time or else that dog will drive you crazy and eat your stuff. I'm not speaking from personal experience here. Get a dog and pray for interactions. 
you live in St. Elmo or Flintstone or, or towards the north end of Lookout, that's a great idea. Make yourself take walks and then say, Lord, who do you want me to talk to tonight? I'm not in a hurry. There is a, uh, um, a guy that a lot of us know who, just des- who decided in a similar conviction, I'm going to walk my neighborhood. He lives in St. Elmo. I'm going to walk it. And I'm going to have my head up. And I'm going to talk to people, even though I'm an introvert and I'm tired at the end of the day. You can resist that. You can't go the opposite right. You can resist your own feelings. I'm going to talk to people that I run across. And out of that, out of his prayer through his neighborhood, his interactions with his neighbors, uh, he wants to start a new church. And he's leading other people and saying, do you, do you want to start this with me? Do you want to start a new worshiping community that would reach out in this neighborhood effectively, unhurriedly, lovingly, across boundaries? You've got to make time. You've got to recognize that our thirst is not going to be satisfied by a busy work life or a safe family life. Those things are hindrance. It's a hindrance to us running fast with these strong legs we've been given. It's a hindrance to us giving out this living water because we've received it. Amen.